Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice and LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. My guest is Associate Justice Anne McCaig of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Justice McCaig was appointed to the court in 2016 by Governor Mark Dayton and was elected to a seven-year term in 2018. She grew up in the town of Federal Dam, Minnesota, population 106 people, and on the Leech Lake Reservation as part of the White Earth Nation. That is part of her father's heritage. Justice McCaig is the first Native American woman to sit on any state Supreme Court in the United States. Justice McCaig began work as an assistant Hennepin County attorney in 1992 in the Child Protection Division, where she specialized in Indian child welfare cases. She held that position until 2008, when she was appointed by Governor Valenti to the district court bench in Hennepin County. While on the district court, Justice McCaig served several years as presiding judge in family court. Justice McCaig co-authored a law school curriculum entitled Child Abuse and the Law that she taught at Mitchell Hamlin's School of Law as an adjunct professor. And she teaches that course along with domestic violence in the law as an adjunct professor at St. Thomas School of Law. Justice McCaig, welcome and thank you. Why don't we start off with uh, sort of an introduction. Could you tell us about your childhood and family in Federal Dam and how did you develop an interest in law? Well, bonjour, good morning, and thank you for having me on the podcast. And I am always happy to talk about Federal Dam. It's a place that is near and dear to my heart. And in fact, when I was interviewed for the current position that I hold, I ended up talking to the governor whether he knew where Federal Dam was. So it is in the northwest part of the lovely state of Minnesota. Uh, it is was a population 106, and they just completed the census. And I'm told by my mother that we are now at 95, um, you know, 96 when I'm home. So uh, the the population is is decreasing, but I hope to change that. You know, childhood for me was was a very I'm lucky. Let me just say that I'm very lucky because not every kid has the childhood that I had. It was very simple uh, in a town, as you can imagine. My dad had grown up on the reservation and near Federal Dam. He was born in Onagam at the Indian Health Services Hospital. And he had a true love for the entire area and had bought this plot of land, which is 40 acres, I guess it's a little more than a plot, uh, several years ago. And then after he met my mother, he tried to make a go of it in the Twin Cities where jobs were more plentiful. But uh, my mother got a little tired of packing up four kids at that point and heading north every weekend. And so finally, she just said, I give up. And she said, let us move back uh, north. And so it was there where I, my memories really begin. I was three years old and we had placed a trailer house on the property and just a lot of uh, running around with my mediocre brothers, as I like to describe them. I think that you've heard me describe them as such and uh, doing a lot of fishing, a lot of hunting, 
you know, I started working when I was 13 years old in the local restaurant. I delivered the Grit newspaper for those who might remember what that was. I do. Yeah. And it was so it was it was just, I think, uh, sort of a childhood, perhaps of a, another time. Although I will say that things still remain pretty much the same up there, which is what I love about it. My family still lives there. Um, but I always had my eyes set on wanting to go to college, or I should say, perhaps even expected to go to college. My mom was a Fulbright scholar and had gone to St. Catherine University in St. Paul. And so it was expected that we were going to pick up a trade of some sort. And so I wanted to follow in her footsteps as much as I could and knew that I wanted to attend college. So I started work when I was 13. So how did you end up in law? Uh, I, I know that uh, from hearing you speak before that your dream was actually to be a uh, a country western singer. So how did an aspiring country western singer become a lawyer? Well, I was tricked by my mother, who um, apparently thought that that the the my aspirations of being the next Loretta Lynn was uh, less than hopeful. And so college was going to be something that I needed to do. And I had done a report actually in ninth grade. If people can remember the cover of the Rolling Stones, uh, album where they has the big mouth with the tongue sticking out. I had decided I was going to be a dentist. And so I remember this folder that I made and I put this picture on the front and it was a really good, you know, career research project. And I think it's because I liked our dentist at the time. And I thought I'm going to be a dentist. And I did all this research and it was a lot of science. And man, I I had no love of science and I was terrible at it. So I thought, well, this is not going to work out. I I've got to pick something else. And for some reason, and I honestly really can't say exactly why, but I decided, well, I'll just be a lawyer. Well, I'm glad that worked out. And I think to the benefit of uh, uh, all of us, particularly your, your neighbors in, uh, in Minnesota, let's fast forward a little ways. You worked as a county attorney specializing in Indian child welfare cases. Could you talk about that and, and how it affected your, your views of the world and, and, and your subsequent work? Sure. You know, when I left law school, I really had no idea what I wanted to do other than I needed a job that was going to pay the bills. And I was lucky enough to land a job in the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. And they placed me in this child protection division. And I can't say that I really knew what it was about. But from the day that I walked into the courtroom and was able to work on issues related to kids and their well-being, I knew I was in the right place. But even more fortunate for me, you know, Hennepin County in Minneapolis has the largest or had one of the largest urban Indian populations in the country. So sadly, we had a very large number of cases that um, impacted our Native communities. And so at one point, I was asked if I wanted to specialize and be one of two attorneys in our division who were going to handle these cases and sort of work on building relationships with all of our tribes within our state, as well as our, our bordering states, which included the Dakotas and Wisconsin. And for me, that sounded like something that would uh, not only professionally be interesting, but also personally um, something that I would enjoy since I grew up on the reservation. And it was that when I sort of starting along that path that I then was able to have, I think, an opportunity to do some really good policy work, but also to learn more about myself and my family history, which 
I think doesn't always happen for everybody in their career. So I consider that really fortunate. I met a lot of really great people who who taught me things that I didn't learn growing up. My dad was not a traditionalist, as I would say. He, you know, taught me those certain basic values, I think. But um, his dad, my grandfather, who was fluent in the language in Ojibwe, had passed away when I was very young. And so my dad didn't have a good grasp of the language and didn't have necessarily a good grasp of all of the customs either. So it was a rare opportunity for me to both expand, I think, my personal history as well as hopefully my professional history. That's fascinating and wonderful. Um, lots of lawyers are interested in becoming a judge. How did you become a district court judge? Yeah, I didn't start out with that goal for sure. And in fact, uh, I had a lot of respect for the judges that I appeared before, but it, it never really entered my mind that it was something that I wanted to do or that I even could do until the very first Native American judge was sworn in in the Twin Cities. And I talk about him quite often, and that is Robert Blazer. He was sworn in. There was a huge celebration. And I remember being invited to go and watch his investiture. And so I didn't know him, never met him, but I went and watched his investiture sort of from the back of the room. And I think it was really the first time that I ever thought, well, maybe I could do that someday, but I wasn't sure where my career would take me or how one could even go about doing that. So it was just, I think, just pure luck that I happened to be able to witness his investiture and then had the good fortune of him coming down and being our presiding judge in juvenile court where I appeared every day. So then I was able to meet him and and develop a relationship with him. That just underscores the effect that pioneering judges, justices, CEOs, school superintendents, presidents of the United States uh, or other entities can have in terms of enlarging children and younger people's views of their own possibilities. And it just uh, really underscores that point. You mentioned um, Judge Blazer, and um, I think in my own career of the many people who mentored me and how lucky I was in, in getting their help. Could you talk a little bit, he served as a model for you at the outset of your career. How did he help you subsequently in terms of uh, mentoring you and, and thinking about both your career and yourself? Yeah, you know, he, uh, he was amazing because I will say that I definitely was a challenge um, and not the easiest person to mentor. I was always very headstrong, uh, stubborn, you know, a lot of people are kind when they describe it as passion. And, you know, I'd like to say that that developed hopefully into passion. But, um, you know, I can recall many times when I would be appearing before him in court and I would, you know, push my seat back from counsel table and throw my hands up in disgust at opposing counsel's argument. Or I'd throw the pen in the air and I was an eye roller, as you know, uh, a terrible eye roller. And he would call me on the carpet about that all the time. And the man was persistent and never got tired. 
And I remember going to him and saying, you know, gosh, do you think one day I could be a judge? And he had no hesitation in saying no. And he said, you know, until you start listening to me and taking some of this constructive feedback and making some changes, he said, it's not going to happen. And I'm sure I rolled my eyes at him telling me that. And uh, it took it took a few more years for me to actually start to engage in everything that he was saying and take it a little more seriously. And I had to mature both professionally and personally. And um, I asked him multiple times before finally I was ready to give up. And then he said, OK, now you're ready. And and so he helped me sort of understand what that process looked like, because it's not it's not um you know, widely known, or it certainly wasn't in my world, what that process looked like. And it's very, it can be very intimidating sort of walking into a boardroom with, you know, 16 people that you've never met before, or perhaps don't have a lot in common with and sort of explaining to them why you're the person for the job. And I think that that's hard for many people, but it was, you know, especially hard for me. I, I'm never used to going in there and saying, Oh, I'm the best person for the job. I think that's a challenge unto itself, but he certainly made all of that possible and um, appreciated me for the my rough edges, but also smoothed enough of them to know or to allow me to, I think, to be as successful or as good at the job as I could. Mentors matter. As a trial court judge, how did self-represented litigants affect your work? I actually really enjoyed that part of my job probably the most, which I can't say that every one of my colleagues feels that way. So in family court in Hennepin, where we handle about a quarter of the cases of the state and about 12,000 cases that go through that court every year and 78 to 80 percent of our litigants were self-represented. Um, and for me, that just allows, a, I think, a greater interaction in trying to help people resolve their own issues. It can be challenging for sure. I mean, there were certainly times where I inside my head was screaming, like, get me out of here. Um, I used to tell my law clerks, uh, I'd use soccer analogies. I'm like, okay, you know, yellow card me if I'm starting to go off the rails. And if I've gone too far, red card me or call for a break because I never wanted to completely lose it. But it is a challenge for the court in that they don't have lawyers to explain things to them or to help them with all of the procedures that one needs to know in court. But at the same time, I do think um, it does allow the court a closer ability to work with individuals to help to help them solve their own problems. Because frankly, there are very few cases where, they're, where they are not capable of it. Um, so sometimes it was easier to actually work with the litigants more directly than, than through lawyers. Based on your work, uh, particularly in the family court, what, what were your take takeaways on access to justice, uh, especially for families and children? And maybe that that had already those impressions had already begun to form in your work as an attorney uh, doing uh, child welfare cases. Well, it provides a different view. You know, I always say that I've grown, hopefully, professionally because your view changes. I had one view as a county attorney, and then another view as a parent, and then a third view as a trial court judge where you see things from just a different perspective. And certainly the court system is not designed for the majority of people who have to come before the court. It's incredibly intimidating. 
Uh, we use language that nobody understands, which only adds to the intimidation. I think people feel uh, they don't feel like they have been heard. And they also feel like those of us perhaps on the bench cannot identify with any of their daily struggles. And for the most part, that might be absolutely true. I would like us to be a little less worried about the formalities of it all and more worried about the substance as as well as the takeaways and what and the sort of the end result and what are we actually accomplishing because otherwise when we have that barrier of formality sometimes I think it doesn't allow us to get to all of the information that needs to be shared both directions so that everybody gets feels like they've been heard. So I think we have a long way to go. Our Recent uh, LSC's recent justice gap study would uh, endorse your your thought in that regard. We, our study based on 2021 data showed that 92% of the problems faced by low income Americans uh, received either no assistance or inadequate assistance. So uh, we do have a long way to go. Let me go back to your your mentoring relationship with Judge Blazer. How did that affect your mentoring of others as you've gone through? Uh, you know, particularly your your work as a judge. Uh, my my guess is you get requests for advice from aspiring lawyers or aspiring young people uh, a lot. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, honestly. Uh, in watching Judge Blazer, and I'm not the only one that he mentored. I mean, he mentored so many of us. If you put a group of young, um, well, I guess we're not so young anymore, but starting my age and below. Uh, in a room, you will you will note that Judge Blazer has impacted almost all of us in some way, shape, or form, and helped us along the way in our career. And I remember talking to him and just seeing how he was tired, and that he really was always called upon to do so many things, and he never felt like he could say no or turn anything down because he knew how important it was. And so, in watching that. I thought, well, this is a chance for me. Uh, I can completely appreciate all of the help that he gave me. I know that I wouldn't be where I am without him. And if I can pay that back in any way, shape or form and allow him at least the ability to feel like he can turn things down and know that I will pick it up, um, then I certainly owe not only him, but our community that. And so I try very hard to do some of what he has done in being accessible to everyone, you know, not forgetting where I came from, not forgetting how I got to where I am, uh, and being able to connect with people in some way, shape, or form that perhaps it's just allowing them to see in themselves what perhaps they're not seeing, which is really what he did for me. That's you know, talk about uh, paying it forward. That's terrific. People don't get appointed to uh, Supreme Court benches uh, in the United States or the state Supreme Court bench accidentally. Tell us about your appointment to the Minnesota Supreme Court. How did that come about? Well, again, it wasn't a job that I was looking for. It wasn't my dream job. In fact, I never saw myself in the appellate world at all had the chance as a county attorney to argue before the appellate courts, but never really wanted to do that. Didn't feel like that was where I, my strengths were. 
So it was my mentor judge who came knocking once again and just had told me that there was this opening coming up on the Supreme Court and that he felt it was really time for our community to have a seat at the table. And I really thought he was talking about himself. And uh, he, he very quickly informed me that I was going to apply and that he felt that the time was now and that I was going to be the one and that it wasn't about what I wanted, that it was really about the community as a whole and that continuing of sort of paying back. And so I thought, well, all right, you're crazy, but I'll do this application. And there's no way that it's going to go anywhere because, you know, I, I mean, I certainly was a hard worker on the trial court bench. And I think I was known as a good trial court judge, uh, but I was known as a prankster um, and somebody who liked, you know, have a good time at work, even though uh, the work was important and I, it all got done. But I just think we spend so much time at work that you got to have fun, too. So I just didn't feel like I had any of the qualifications that I thought of when I would think of a Supreme Court justice. But I applied and I give Governor Dayton a lot of credit, as well as all of those who made the phone calls or wrote the letters or believed that I could actually do the job. Um, certainly there were the naysayers as well, but when I actually made it through the commission, who perhaps was looking for something maybe just a little bit different, um, and then talking to the governor, it was a very casual conversation, but I felt like he really got who I was. So I think he went in with his eyes wide open and just felt like I had something different to offer the court. Um, but I'm sure that the day that that announcement was made, that if I if uh, that there were many people's eyes rolling that were going, what? Like, how did this happen? And really unsure of how that was going to work out. I mean, I can't tell you how many people said to me, you're not going to like the job. You're not going to like the job. And I said, well, I know that. I know that I'm not going into my dream job, but I also know that or hope that I can make a difference in other ways. And you know, I mean, I, I still struggle with the job for sure, but hopefully I'm making a difference somewhere along the way. Well, you're into it now for about six years, and obviously it, it appears that uh, your aspiration of um, being a country western singer, uh, at least in the near term, is is, is not going to uh, come to fruition. So how how is your day job working out uh, after five or six years? Well, I will say this is that it's uh, I get to do a lot of public speaking. I get to go to a lot of schools and talk to kids. I get to go to places that perhaps our court system doesn't generally go. And for me, that is the best part of the job. And and hopefully, you know, finding another person like me or who grew up in like circumstances who might be inspired to do something that they didn't feel like they could do after I visit them. So that part of the job, I really, really enjoy. I do enjoy my colleagues. I feel like I am bringing some humor to the court, which, believe it or not, that has definitely been one of my goals, is to uh, bring some um, levity to the court and hopefully expand our view as um, how our decisions work in everyday life. Uh, you know, I go home often to the reservation. In fact, I'm heading there this afternoon. Um, and I hope that I have been able to bring that voice to the court. Um, you know, I'm lucky. 
I thought during the pandemic, especially when I saw so many people struggling, that I felt really fortunate to have a, a good job that pays well and that I can count on so that I can support the people that I need to support and worried about so many others who weren't so lucky. So most of all, I think I just probably feel really fortunate. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic, and obviously, as, as you've described, you've done a lot of work in the areas of child abuse and domestic violence. Uh, how has the pandemic affected those problems in the populations that everybody's, every population is affected by those problems? How, how has the pandemic affected those problems? Yeah, I think it's exacerbated the issues, and I don't think to what extent we really know yet as as we continue to sort of come out of the pandemic and people return to perhaps some of what was, I don't think we'll ever go back to the, every everything the way that it was. Uh, there have been some good things that have come out. I think we've learned as a court system that rural parts of our state are benefiting from, you know, Zoom or court virtual court, not having to find transportation or childcare or all of those things. But at the same time, I also think that it has also exacerbated isolation and unfortunately, child abuse um, and domestic violence, that's breeding ground for those issues. And so to what full extent, I'm not sure that we know yet, but we do know that there's been a vast increase. And I worry about a population that's already been extremely vulnerable and to what that's going to mean over the long haul. So um, I think we have to really step up our efforts in both areas. Well, as you described, lots of folks are going through hard times uh, and even more so through the pandemic. So you talked about uh, your opportunities to talk to particularly younger people. What advice you know, during hard times do you give to young people? Well, I mean, I always try to say, don't forget that you matter and that you have value and that we can't define our value by other people's value. You know, I think we used to always think of what does success mean? Oh, it means that you're going to have this very powerful job or a job that's got a lot of exposure or publicity. And for me, that's not what success means. It can be as something as simple as making a difference because you're the best, you know, you're the best electrician or you're the best construction worker, or you're able to go and help out people in your community by cutting down their trees. So many different ways of defining that success. And I think so many people feel like they don't matter or that they're invisible. And uh, one of the things that when I do go out and talk to people, especially even our older people is, is especially youth today, you know, don't walk, don't cross the street to go away from the youth, try to actually see them and let them know that you see them. And it can be a very small compliment such as, Hey, that's a cool hat or, I love your shoes or I like your glasses or anything like that, because you never know that that might just be the one positive comment that that person received that day. That's going to make a difference to them, because if we think about it, it feels good for all of us for somebody to be nice to us. And sometimes we forget that those simple things can go a long way. So I just want people to remember that we all are important and it's not just those who are perhaps in the public eye, or feel like they have the big titles that matter. We all matter. Justice McKay, thanks for being with me today. But much more importantly, thank you for the inspiration you provide to all of us. Oh, miigwech. Thank you. 
podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.